we, we, we should rap about things that we like, like, like food. That's what you bugging as Jeff, you know it. We're gonna be like the Partridge family, but with food. You like food, don't you? Got any uh, white bread? Yes. Oh, wait. I am the spaghetti. Duval, you're not the spaghetti. I am the spaghetti. Let go of the lid. Got spaghetti in here. Is this organic? Sure. Is it grass-fed? Yes. Cruelty-free? What's so special about the cheese maker? As the saying goes, you are what you eat. And I am freaking cheese. <laughs> How are you, Stacey? I'm good. How are you? I'm very good. I'm always happy <laughs> when I've got bottles and glasses of wine sitting in front of me. So tell us a little bit about yourself. So other than being Cheesy's one and only main sponsor, what what do you do? Uh, I'm a wine rep for La Reserve Wines here in Brisbane, and we're a premium boutique wine company uh, focusing on brands that aren't featured in you know your major retail like Dan Murphy's or First yeah. Choice, um, and focusing on brands that uh, you know kind of family run, small producers uh, making you know sort of four thousand bottles a year, like really really quite um, boutique productions, and um, for brands the, that for the general public or for more for restaurants and it and is primarily shops. primarily on premise. Only, which is your restaurant trade and yeah. then independent bottle shops um, guys like you know Wine Emporium Crew Bar Wine Experience uh, Craft at Red Hill around Brisbane so, so does that mean you um, uh, like if you're doing small batch runs and stuff are you sort of the other way do you find you, you can't service all your customers or are you always it does happen from time to time yeah. especially with this brand Suma um, the Pinot and the Chardonnay are the two very popular wines and that's kind of nationwide um, and kind of historically around November December we will run out of wine yeah. um, and then we have to kind of wait until January for the next release yeah, it's okay. a bit of a double edged sword because sometimes you'd love to hold a wine back a little while to then show it up after it's had some bottle age yeah. but when you're only making like 2,000 bottles a year for yeah. say these wines it's a luxury you can't you can't have so I've got a question with this sort of stuff. Will it get better with age? Definitely. So are restaurants buying this and selling it themselves? It's it's a tough thing to do these days because people don't really have the money to tie up. Yeah, that's what I would have thought. And put wine away for the future. Um, I tried it when I was a sommelier at the Tattersalls Club. I had a long-term storage facility and we were buying wine for the future of the club. But you have to constantly be bringing things out and putting back in to to maintain that stock level. Then you're sort of being a storeman as well as a sommelier. And and the restaurant trade has really kind of demanded of the Australian wine industry to make wines that are drinkable now. Okay, so this is my big question that I want to ask you this week. Um, I drink cheap wine, um, mostly because of budget. Um, And I have found lately, if I do get a $30 bottle of red, because I mostly drink red, and we're talking a little bit before the show, and you're talking about um, um, Shiraz, that I do like those big, bold, and... When I drink the more expensive stuff, I find it almost too smooth. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't. Um, I don't know whether I'm just not my pa- palate's not trained to pick up the complexity, and I'm not. I just don't feel like I'm getting very good value for it. Does, okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Now, what I wanted to know was, 
am I just making poor choices in that $30 um, price bracket? Is if I tasted a hundred dollar bottle of wine, would I really be able to taste the difference? Yeah, that is a tough question. It's something that people I found a lot in being a sommelier. Some people would, you know, those really expensive bottle of wines, it would just go straight over their head because yeah. they, they just missed the point of it. Um, some of those more expensive wines really are made to be drunk with age, and yeah. so um, you know, it could be that the oak is too 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 showing, you know, at the start, or it could be too much fruit. And the wine hasn't yet kind of integrated into itself properly, uh, and so sometimes people will will kind of miss the point, you know. Um, and Grange is a great example, you know, seven hundred dollar bottle of wine. Yeah. You've really wasted your money if you've opened it any younger than fifteen years. Because yes. Australia makes very very good young wine, don't they? Yeah. Um, but we definitely went through a period there where we were making really big wines in the early 2000s, the noughties. Yeah. Um, and it was geared mostly for the American palate, a guy named Robert Parker Jr. Um, because he was giving 100 point wines to all these big alcoholic numbers. But they weren't really ageable wines. Um, yes. They'd fall over pretty quickly after that five right. to eight year mark. No, nothing gets aged in my house, no. so that's and, not a problem. Uh, and, so, and the other problem we faced as restaurateurs is, you know, you could buy a wine and it says a 2015 wine and it wouldn't be approachable now. And, you know, if you're putting it on your wine list by the glass, yeah. you need it to be. Yeah. And so we've gone back to wine, you know, Wine Australia and, and winemakers and said, we really need you to produce wines that are, that are drinkable now yeah. so our customers can enjoy them because we don't have the money to put them away for yeah. 10 or 15 years to let them integrate properly. So who, who does that for the restaurant industry? Is there businesses that basically buy, because it's, it's almost like gambling, isn't it? It's a little, a little bit. bit of speculation. There's a, there is a lot of that and, uh, you know, um, we it's kind of on each business's responsibility if they want to do it yeah. um, we talk to winemakers all the time and you know we go out and see the trade and we communicate that what we get back from the trade directly to the winemakers to say look hey the guys are saying this about the wine yeah. they think it's too young or we're releasing it too so, early so does the owners go back on the winemaker to age it then rather than definitely and, uh, 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 so there's no sort of intermediary that's buying up young wines and aging them themselves no it's there's guys like langton's in south australia which is an auction house which will buy wine for that purpose but that's yeah. for selling to their own members otherwise in australia it really is on the the onus is on the winery and like i said with Suma, if we could we would hold back the wines in maybe six months or 12 months and then release them yeah but because we're only making you know two thousand bottles in a given year and the demand is for the wine we have to release the yeah. next one immediately straight after that release date and so um, sadly we don't get the, the ability to do that some wineries will hold back uh, small quantities um, of wine maybe a few you know a couple of you know dozen or so for uh, future events like winemakers dinners yeah. or to have in their you know their own cellar door the restaurant museum releases but it is also an expensive thing for yeah, them you're to tying, do tying up money. Um, one of my winemakers used to be the uh, general manager in charge of production at Taylor's and I can tell you now they make, you know, kind of 700,000 dozen of one wine, you yeah. know, and so they can put away maybe 50, you know, or 100 yeah. dozen, and stick them in the corner because they know they're going to sell that anyway and yeah. it's not really costing them anything. But when you come back to a winery like this, yeah, which is you're, making... If you're putting 5% of it away, that's, that's a fair chunk of your turnover. Especially when you're only making like 180 dozen to begin with. Yeah.
So it's a, it's a, it is a double-edged sword of the Australian wine industry. Um, interesting fact is that 60% of all wine purchased in Australia is consumed within four hours of purchase. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, yeah, and you know, people, people, people don't really have the money to buy wine to put down. Uh, some people do, and it's a luxury that some can enjoy, um, but it is, it is a difficult thing these days. I'm sort of in... Um, so I'm buying my wine online mm. the, the cheaper stuff rather than going yeah. to Dan's I think it actually comes from Dan's anyway I think it's a could do it's a, their back end um, organisation but I'm, I'm in this weird space where like I, oh that's nice and I'll take a photo of it and then I'll look for that in the cart and buy mm. later on because I like that wine but I just don't know enough about it to go um, to understand why I like a, sh- a particular wine like I can't sort of go oh, I must like that wine because of this I'll look for these other ones that'll yeah, be in the same similar and the thing I found with your um, the whites that you've brought that I don't really enjoy white at all and again I'm buying cheap white but I have been enjoying the whites that that, that you've been bringing yep. in and, and maybe the complexity like is a little too raw in the cheaper whites and I'm noticing it, it's, it's a, um, a lot more enjoyable in the Yep. in something a little bit better. The the thing with white wine and the the, the, the mass-produced lower-end scale of the Australian wine industry, um, you could be producing uh, millions of dozens in a year and, uh, you know, to save on costs, you're using things like oak staves lined on the inside of a tank yeah. or, or oak powders, oak wood chips um, yeah. to minimise costs and then, you know, you're bottling the wine very quickly and getting it out as fast as you can and, and I guess this is where, like, the guys like your Rosemounts and Jacobs Creeks and Yellowtails have done so well overseas. Yeah. At that lower price point, you're really looking for wine that doesn't offend. Yeah. You don't want it to be offensive. No. You're not going to say, this is a great wine at... Yeah, I don't don't think I've, I don't think I've drunk in the last sort of four or five years a wine that I've gone, oh, this is just terrible. Yeah. Um, And the human palate's designed to like things that are sweet, and that very first sensation on our tongue picks up sugar. And so at that lower end, they're really looking for... I've definitely had white wines that I thought have been crap. Fruit ripeness in your reds, and also even in your whites. Like, we we picked up a... My wife loves Chardonnay, and she picked up a a rather cheap Chardonnay at Dan Murphy's one day just to try it. And um, she'd tried some of our really good Chardonnays. And when she drank it, she went, oh, there's lots of fruit up front, but then it just... It just disappeared it super quickly, yeah. and there was no complexity. There was no follow-on. There was no lingering aftertaste, and she just went, "Oh, that's really disappointing," you know. And I went, "Well, that's where they're they're really wanting to get that first mouthful that goes, oh, this is nice,' but the rest doesn't really matter so much." I can remember that very very clearly the first time I drank good scotch, like really good scotch, you know, mm-hmm. like over hundred dollar bottle scotch, and uh, the fact that it had a taste when it hit your tongue. And then it sort of developed on the tongue, and then when you swallowed, it almost had two aftertastes. Mm-hmm. You know, it's sort of as you swallowed, and then as you breathed out, it yes. sort of really yes. hit different things on the palate. And just being just blown away by, you know, how complex that was. And um, the thing I look for in a good bottle of wine, and um, when I used to be a wine show judge, we'd seek this out. Ultimately, you want balance. Yeah. And so if you've got one element that's really, really kind of sticking out and saying, look at me, look at me, grabbing attention, it's not a balanced wine. Um, and that could be, say, there's too much oak or there's too much alcohol, not enough acidity, there's not enough fruit to compete with the oak, for example. Um, and so you only get that one element. And at that lower end of the price point with Australian wine, they're really going hard on that fruit, Yeah. fruit sweetness. 
to immediately appeal to that first sensation, but then the rest just disappears. And so there is no, it's not a complete wine because it just it's just appealing to one element of your taste buds. Um, and so really what you're looking for there in those kind of sub $10 bottles is is wine that doesn't offend. Yeah. And then as you go up into that sort of 10 to $20 bracket, you start to get a bit more complexity. Yeah, well, that's, that's, more, that's where I sort of few more elements in that, in that 10 to, to 20 And I've got a couple... Um, like the Bleasdale Mulberry Tree. Yep. Um, yeah, that's a that's a bit of a favourite. There's a, there's a couple that I've got saved on my phone that you know if I come across them, I'm special. I, I grab them because I, I know that they're they're ones that I like. But um, mm. like Jake uh, DeBortley's Windy Peak Pinot Noir is a great wine under that fifteen dollar mark, and it, it it is really really a great sound wine. Balanced. There's lots of fruit. There's oak. There's acidity. There's everything that should be there. Um, and you know it really ticks every box as far as one of the best value wines in Australia. So in terms of a really young wine, are there expensive young wines in Australia? Like expensive wines that are basically made to be drunk straight away but are still, you know, over $40, $50 a bottle? Um, there are, but not a lot. Um, generally speaking, you know, uh, like our Sumer Chardonnay is about kind of 35 to $38 a bottle retail. Yeah. Um, and current release is 2015. Yeah. It will certainly age uh, a great deal if, if allowed to, but, um, and it'll develop more complexity and secondary notes. But, um, you know, there are just, again, it's demand on the wineries. Yeah. And there are some out there that it might be 2015 or 2014. Yes, you can drink them now. You might enjoy them, but then you might also enjoy them with time see how this wine develops and if I said to anyone if anyone was looking to start like their own little cellar at home buy a six pack of a wine you like and then and drink one every year yeah one every year sort of thing uh, or or, or, you know put put one away and pull one out every two years and when it gets to the point that you're just like that is magic drink Drink it all (laughs) drink all of them you know and because wine's made to be drunk at the end of the day and if you leave it too long it might go past that point and you'll be like, oh, I don't enjoy this at all. It's nothing like the wine I tried. Yeah. You know, one one of my ago. mate's um, dad's was a, a bit of a wine buff, um, but he was the sort of wine buff that I really could connect with if you had, if I had heaps of money and I could mm. get into wine. And he would, Michael said he used to sit there and he'd read his wine magazine and he'd, and he'd go, oh, they're they reckon this wine's great at the moment. I've got that wine in the cellar. And he'd toodle off and he'd pull it out and... There he goes. And then here we go, let's have a try. You know, he wasn't sort of he wasn't sort of going, Oh look, I've got that in my cellar and I'm not gonna touch it because now it's you know, it's worth two hundred bucks. It was like, Oh, it's good to drink, let's go and drink it. Yeah. Um and that's a you know you, you want to enjoy it, don't you? Food and wine is memories, and there's. I think when people taste things, sometimes they'll evoke a memory, something maybe from your childhood, a flavour you've had in the past, yeah. and um, that's how I kind of relate to things. And you know, I might try one and go, oh, that reminds me of a, you know, berry strudel Grandma used to make, or you know, um, and you know, I think people, uh, if you're buying wine and putting it away in the hope that it's going to get increase in value you're, you're kind of fooling yourself, yourself yeah. there's very few wines in well, this country that would do that it's it's um, um you know to take your money to the casino yeah <laughs> like, exactly you better like it, it, it is it was really a gamble isn't it very much um so what have we got here they're both pinots so we've got two pinots um now the glass on your left is the uh suma 
Hexham Vineyard Pinot. And then the glass on the right is the Suma Bluestone Vineyard Pinot. Um, now, we've got two Pinot Noirs here, and these vineyards are literally 300 metres apart. Yeah, so right. Tiger, Woods, Tiger Woods could hit a golf ball between them. Yeah. Um, what you're going to see is we've got one vineyard that's 22 years old, and the other vineyard is 18 years old. The Hexham Vineyard is a combination of MV6 clones, Dijon Triple Seven clones, which is one of the most famous Pinot clones in the world, and Clos de la Roche clone, which is a, an extraordinarily famous clone from uh, from Burgundy in France. Whereas the Bluestone Vineyard, just 300 metres over the way, is only MV6 clone. So we've got two wines. They're you know very similar age vineyards. They are treated the same way in the winery, but the clonal difference gives you two completely different wines. Yeah, right. It just smells a bit mouldy. It's earthier. And Pinot is, uh, I should kind of just dial in quickly here, Pinot Noir for me is the holy grail of winemaking. Yeah. Because getting it right is extraordinarily difficult. Uh, I used to be a viticulturalist for Rosemount many years ago, and um, Pinot is a variety that it doesn't like, it doesn't like too much water. It is very thin-skinned. It well, is, it's perfect for Australia. <laughs> it's very thin-skinned, and so it's prone to sunburn. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's quite a temperamental grape. And so getting that perfect is hard to do. So the most expensive wine in the world is Pinot. So is it your favourite wine to drink? I, I am a very big fan of Pinot. It's not my absolute favourite. There is one one grape I hold in even higher esteem, which for me is Nebbiolo um, from Italy. And I think it is... It is as good as, as the great Pinots of the world, especially Barolo. Um, there'd be those that would argue with me, though, because yeah. uh, a lot of people do hold Pinot Noir in such a high regard. So I guess what I want you to do is taste the wine on the left first, the Hexham mm. Vineyard, and this is the blend of all three clones. Yeah, it had... This one had more... I could smell more in this one, but I thought this one had more depth of flavour. All right. That one... It's a little bit of a joke on the podcast, actually, because when we first started doing um, this pod, Sally was doing um, cooking classes Mm -hmm. out of her house, and same sort of thing. She used to buy wine online and just be mixed cartons and whatever, and for whatever reason, when we started doing the podcast, all she had left was Pinot, cheap Pinot. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it's not it's not my f- favourite wine in the world and so we'd rock up and we'd set up the podcast she'd say, well, you want a wine? sure and she'd get oh bloody Pinot again because <laughs> that's all she had left <laughs> here we are in the cellar but this is uh, this is a little bit different to so that what, what I get here with the first glass the Hexham Vineyard it, for me it's a more feminine expression of Pinot being all three vines all three clones and it's probably a little bit brighter um, it's got sort of lovely red red fruits red cherries strawberries um and then it doesn't have a lot of those earthy components pinot noir pinot noir can get very barnyardy you get you know sort of wet forest floor dank bark mushroom truffly characters when you come over to glass two i think the fruit is a little bit darker um sort of that black cherry and uh you know, sort of fruits of the forest sort of characters, but then you get that little bit of earthiness. You get that sort of earth and yeah, it's got that wet um, forest floor mushroomy sort of note. 
and it almost leaves your tongue a little bit drier. It's a bit bolder in the tannin structure mm. as well. And so this is, as you said, these are 300 metres apart. Yeah. So viticulturally, identical vineyards. Climate-wise, pretty much identical vineyards. But we've got just the only thing that separates them is clones. And what about the age of the vine? Does that make much of a difference or not really? Uh, in this stage, 22 years versus 18 years, no. Um, if we were talking 22 years versus an 80-year-old vine, yep. definitely. As a vine gets older, so in its infancy, it'll take three years to bear fruit. Yeah. Five years for you to make your first wine from it. Yeah. Okay? So it's an expensive business to get into because you've got nothing for four years, basically. Yeah. Well... And then you've I'm, got to sell the damn thing. I know, well, not about that part of it, but, like, when we moved into my place at home, mm. um, and actually, I should ask you about which grapes I should grow at home. Um, yeah, like, set... No, no fruit trees at all, which I just think is criminal for a, you know, I think if you've got a little lifestyle acreage block and yep. you've not planted at least a lemon tree, like who doesn't plant a lemon tree? And it was very interesting when we were looking at places to move to, we looked at Sanford and we looked at this one particular house down near Yatla and the, the, the one at Sanford ended up, we just got priced out basically, yep. someone came in over us, 80 grand over us Ooh. or something, but it had an orchard, it had a good mango tree and a couple of lemon trees and I was stoked I was like oh sweet you know it's all established I don't I only have to plant what I mm. what I need to whereas this pretty much had nothing and so you know some of those trees have been in four years but I haven't really they're just starting to get to the stage where they're established enough yep. that I'll start to see some fruit well, in those first years, uh, when you get that first crop at the five-year mark, uh, you'll have a lot of bunches mm. on one vine, uh, on all the vines, but each individual vine will have a lot of bunches, and the fruit, the berries will be quite quite big, quite yeah. water-laden, uh, and you won't get a lot of intensity of flavour there. You'll have quite a big yield, of course, because they're quite big, plump sort of berries, and you've got lots of them. So you might crop, you know, 10 tonne to the acre, for example. Mm-hmm. Once you get up to kind of that, you know, sort of 40, 50-year-old mark, you start to get less bunches. So you might only get, you know, seven or eight bunches versus 12 or 15 in the first, you know, and uh, the berries start to get a bit smaller. By the time you start to hit that sort of 100-year mark, the centenary, 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 I'm going to leave that alone, but vines that have hit that 100-year sort of mark, you you might get two or three bunches per vine. And the berries are much, much smaller, but incredibly flavour intense. Yeah, right. And if you go down to Henschke in the Eden Valley and see the post office blocks, there's six of them that make up the Hill of Grace. They are tiny, incredibly powerful berries bearing maybe half a tonne to the acre. Whereas in its infancy, you might have been getting 10 tonne to the acre. So is there a, um, like, is there an end point? Yep. So is it Eventually, like 150 years, that's it? You've got to replace the vines? or yeah, Like a human being, it varies from, from vine to vine. Um, some guys treat their vineyards like a garden, and if a vine dies, they'll remove it and replant a new vine in the vineyard itself. Mm-hmm. Other people will wait for the entire vineyard to die out and replant. Um, yeah, okay. You know, there are vines like in South Africa that are, were planted in 1697. Yeah, um, and they've never had phylloxera, so the vines are some of the oldest on on the planet. So you is know? that like a fungus? It's a it's an aphid, which ah, almost wiped right. out. It almost wiped out the world's wine population at the end of the eighteen hundreds. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it's interesting. I didn't realise this until recently. That, but you know, um, bananas are basically um, living on borrowed time. We, we've already moved through one cultivar of banana. We used to have. 
if there used to be one commercial type of banana and the fungus that they've got in North Queensland now, uh, like a relative of that fungus, went through and wiped out pretty much 95% mm. of that population of banana. Um, and because bananas are, are clones, not, um, you know, they don't... Um, they don't grow from flowers, oh, so yeah. they, don't, they don't. They they can't evolve. Basically, they're just cloning each other all the time. Once this fungus gets in, that's it. You, you yeah. can't. So they, they they were saying one day there won't be a Cavendish banana. There just there just won't be any in wow. in the world at all. Fortunately, the American vine uh, is resistant yeah. to phylloxera, and so a lot of the world has had gone in and re, re, uh, planted American rootstock and grafted the vines onto American okay. rootstock. To make them phylloxera resistant. Yeah, there are some parts of the world that have never had phylloxera, um, but I mean, most of Europe was wiped out. And so, you know, the oldest Shiraz vines in the world are here in Australia, back planted in oh, the wow. 1840s in the Barossa. Yeah, uh, Langmile the Freedom 1847 Shiraz is the oldest Shiraz vine in the world. So, do winemakers? What do winemakers prefer? Do they prefer the you let the whole orchard die out before you? Again, it's going to be it's going to be a varying thing from place to place and winemaker to winemaker. If you um, you know if you go over to France and uh, meet Philippe Gigal at uh, at uh, Igigal in the Rhone Valley, he literally treats his vineyard like a garden. So if a vine dies, he'll remove it, yeah. plant a new vine, and so he can't tell you how old the vineyard is because yeah. there's some vines that might be 80 years yeah. old, some are 90 years old, some are five years old, so, some are 20 years but old. I suppose over the you know over the spread of the whole vineyard. Like you get, some, you get, some an, I get, you get an aggregate age. Yeah, some big berries and are not going to um, make much of a difference, no, are they? No, not at all. And and you know, he, he some of his wines are, uh, are. I mean, a lot of his wines are absolutely stunning. They're some of the best examples of Shiraz Viognier. Um, and it's quite funny if you ever meet him and ask him a question. Uh, a lot of people ask him about um, co-fermenting Shiraz Viognier together or blending, and he, he kind of looks at them puzzled and says, "What are you talking about? We've never blended the wine at all." And they said, well, how do you do it? And he goes, well, my, fa- my grandfather planted the vineyard and every 14th row in the Shiraz vineyard mm. is a Viognier vine. Sicky. And we wait, we wait till the Shiraz is ready. Uh. And we pick the whole vineyard at once, crush it into the tanks, into the barrels, off it goes. There's no co-fermentation, there's no blending required. It happens in the vineyard ah, because right. we've actually planted one run, whole row of white grapes in amongst all the reds. Right. So every 15th row... It's a white vine. So it is a blend, but they just blend... But they do it in the vineyard, not in the winery. So if one year the white goes better than the red, it might be slightly higher white... Potentially, but generally speaking... But is it you, big you, enough that it sort of evens out? Yeah, potentially speaking, every year it'll be 15% Viognier versus 85% yeah. Shiraz. Yeah, um, okay. But, you know, he, he's never heard of this blending concept that we yeah, do in yeah. Australia because his grandfather just and it, is planted that, it all. Is that because we, we've got a lot of um, wine that where people grow the grapes and then people that make the wine? True, yeah. So, so you much. know, you, you grow Shiraz grapes and you send them to the... You send them to the winemaker, and he does. And, and does then you send him the Viognier grapes separately, yeah. and he does what he wants. And that, that that is part of it. You know, in Australia, we have a lot of people who grow grapes just for the purpose of growing, growing, and then selling their fruit off to wineries. Um, and then you've got guys, you know, that have their own winery on board, and they're just doing their own fruit. You know, you go down to South Australia, and there's there's a lot of guys that have uh, wineries just for the purpose of kind of contract winemaking. Yeah. So you know, you might have a vineyard, and you you want to do something with your Shiraz, you'll go to this one contract winemaker and you know he'll make the wine for, for you, you and then send it back and send and it back sell it and, 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 and you sell it a, you know however yeah. you want to do it there's uh 
So it's, it's, it's a bit of a, you know, it depends on place to place. And I guess it also, what it really depends on is how much space you've got. Yeah. You know, some, some places, uh, you know, like the Eden Valley, there's really not a lot of room left to plant new vineyards. They've got an issue with salinity there, so to, before you're even allowed to plant a new vineyard, you must have a dam established. And they um, do soil tests. And soil tests, and uh, you know, there's so many rocky outcrops there that there's really not enough flat expanse to put in a new vineyard. Then you've also got to, you know, where are you going to put your winery if you've, you know, your vineyard's taking up most of your space? So, so if I, if in southeast Queensland, if I wanted to make a red wine at home, mm. is there anything that I can plant? I would go with Mediterranean varieties. Um, I found Queensland, uh, a lot of people when they think of Queensland, they think it's hot. Mm. And yes, as a climate we are. But when you go down to to places like Stanthorpe and the Granite Belt, and uh, it is actually a cool climate GI in Australia. GI is what we call it here as a geographical indicator. And, um, you know, the, the Granite Belt, for example, is 900 metres above sea level. That's on parity with uh, the Mendoza in Argentina as you're climbing up the Andes. And, yep. you know, it's on parity with kind of some of the Alps over in France. It gets pretty and damn And it's, it's damn really cold damn cold. Go to, go, to, go, to, go to Stanthorpe yeah. in May and you'll need your thermals, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so we, we shouldn't be thinking about Queensland as a region that's, that's hot. We should, when you think of Queensland as a wine region, it is cool climate. Yeah. Um, in fact, it's the second highest GI in Australia behind New England. Um, which gets over a thousand feet um, and so you know I th- what we found that works here is if you look at Argentina and Chile things like Malbec um, you know uh, Tempranillo uh, Mediterranean varieties have worked well there yeah Rioja is also almost on parity with Granite Belt in terms of its altitude and soil structure yeah Tempranillo, Ganasha, Graciano all these Mediterranean varieties have done extraordinarily well there so why wouldn't they work well here yeah uh, and when I was a wine judge for the Queensland Wine Awards, some of the almost every year the champion wine of show was an alternative variety like Tempranillo, Graciano, Durif, Saparavi. So, is it because those names are not as familiar? Is that why people aren't buying them, or what's the they, like making or planting those those grapes? Truthfully, in Queensland, when it first started here, you know, uh, granted the Italians really started it back in the twenties, yeah. but mainstream winemaking wasn't really until the seventies and eighties. Um, we didn't know what was going to work. We weren't. We hadn't. We didn't have a hundred years of heritage yeah, like yeah. the Barossa had. Got to try you know, it. The Barossa knew Shiraz and Riesling and Semillon were going to kick butt. Yeah. Um, but here we had no idea. So everyone planted everything hoping one of them was going to be a big hit and none of them really took off because all we had then were mainstream varieties like Shiraz, Cabernet, Chardonnay, you know, Vidello, Semillon, Riesling and so a lot of people sort of mucked around with these varieties hoping that it would work. There has been vintages where Shiraz has been phenomenal from Queensland but they're few and far between Between. compared to the southern states. Plus you'll always be compared to the original. So yeah. everybody in Queensland will always say, well, why buy Queensland Shiraz when I could buy a Barossa Shiraz for the same price? Mm. You know, and um, whereas there's nowhere else in Australia that has really championed these alternative varieties like Tempranillo, Graciano, Sagrantino, Saparavi, Melbach, um, Derif. Derif's the only exception being Rutherglen. But um, it's an opportunity for us to put ourselves on the map and say, hey, we're really good at this and we're making it our own. Mm. And I think a lot of the wineries here should kind of stop mucking around a bit with Shiraz and Cabernet and Merlot because they're always going to be compared to the southern states. I guess it's hard if you've got vines in the ground. It is. To, to rip them up and put something else in, isn't but, it? But 
but you know you could get you know if you had cabernet planted you could graft that onto anything you could you could remove the vines and graft anything from the cabernet family onto it so how long um how long from a graft till you basically reset the vine to zero with yeah. a cutting you have to start again yeah. and it is an expensive process to do but if yeah, I was graft. looking at planting new grapes I'd be focusing on Mediterranean varieties things like your Melbac Tempranillo well, uh, Melbac's one of the ones so the, the place I buy all my fruit trees from that's one that pops up every now and again yeah so and I would certainly recommend it here I think it was a great variety for this region what do they like as an eating grape do they eat alright um they will be okay. The, the, you, you, whenever you taste a wine grape on the vine, yeah. they do taste a lot like the finished product. Yeah. Um, but probably with a bit more sweetness and, you know, the, the tannin and those yeah, astringent notes all come from the skin. Yeah. Um, but generally speaking, they're quite pleasant to eat as long as they're ripe, of course. Yeah. You know, if you bite into one two months earlier, the acidity is going to tell you all about, about it. it. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah, I remember when we were in... Black Musket make fantastic eating grapes. Oh, yeah. You know, they're stunning. My, um... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what did you think we were just having a chat, Julie? Because, because Daisy doesn't have his headphones on. No, that's only if Sal Skypes in so that he can hear Sal. But she hasn't appeared. Um Yeah, my dad he loves grapes. Mm. And um and you know, if there was a roadside stall or he could wander into a vineyard and say, you know, can I pick some grapes off your vine? Um, he stopped once there was a, a, a truck coming out of a winery and he stopped and he had a chat to the driver and then just all around comes around the back and jumps up and grabs <laughs> grabs something out of the back he'd eat any rate but um, mm. I mean they, they're all essentially going to be able to be eaten because uh, you know once the fruit ripeness gets up and the sugars and the pH are balanced it's going to taste beautiful in the mouth but it will taste a lot like what the finished product looked like yeah, okay. and a lot of winemakers when they wander the vineyards they're tasting fruit off the vine I mean we can, we all have uh, tools like refractometers which can tell you the pH and the, the bome of a, of a grape you know um, but essentially you want to you want to you, you'll have a blueprint in your head of how you want this to look and how you want it to taste and so you're going to pick based on how does it taste off the vine yeah you know um so is it is it the tannins in the skin that make grape the fruit for wine like why is it the only really um in the world you have 1263 varieties capable of making wine wine um the tannin in the skin is where you get that dry almost astringent feel in the mouth that what? chalkiness and that drying puckering sensation and it's where the color in red wine comes from yeah so without the skins red wine would essentially look like white wine um and so you when you do is you you'll do your first crush and uh, kind of break the skins and let them soak, you know, and with a red wine, it could be, you know, uh, seven days, 10 days, 20 days, 30 days. And it all depends on, on what you want to achieve out of your, make, making your wine. You know, big Shiraz out of McLaren Vine might only spend seven days on skins. Yeah. Alternatively, if you leave that wine on the skins for, say, 30 days, the tannins will all link up long chains and polarize and then fall out of the wine so by the time you actually do press it oh, properly right. you get no tannin all, no 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 it's still got tannin but it's much softer and so you could make a big wine into a soft wine by letting it soak longer so is that so something like a merlot which is a bit softer isn't it yep is that 
the process or is that the grape? It's the grape. Around the world, we have high tannin and low tannin varieties. Some low tannin examples are like Merlot, uh, Barbera, Zinfandel, Primitivo, um, and then some high tannin varieties, you know, things like your Tempranillo, Nebbiolo, um, Derif or Petit Syrah, and, and those are naturally high tannin grapes. Um, there are certain foods that are also high in tannin. So, uh, for example, pomegranates, cranberries. Yeah. You know, when you drink cranberry juice, you get that really drying sensation. Okay, so why, why isn't there a cranberry wine? It's possible, but, um, you know, I guess if it's been... Maybe someone has tried it. I don't know if they have or haven't. Uh, I've seen guys making wine from dessert wine, from mango, and yeah. all sorts of different and things. And you see strawberry in, yep. in wine yep. a little bit. Um, but it's... Just because it has high tannin doesn't necessarily mean it might make a good drink. Yeah, okay. Um, you know, nuts, for example, any sort of nut with a skin on it, like your almonds with a skin, are high tannin. Dark chocolate is high in tannin. Um, and, uh, it, you know, it's possible, um, but there's certain foods and, I guess, certain grapes that are higher in tannin than others and some that are lower. Yeah. Um, leaving Merlot on skins longer might actually make it even softer again, which, you know, you might start to lose what you know in essence makes it a merlot yeah uh, and so it just depends you know winemakers will have a bit of a plan uh when they're when they're doing these sort of things and know what they want to do before they just just always found it interesting that in all of human history like there's thousands and thousands of fruits mm-hmm. but we only make wine essentially out of out of one fruit you can make vodka out of anything so it's true you know it's not like we haven't experimented no, no, making alcohol out of different things that's right I would know, like potatoes to make... are probably the base but you could do it from just about anything I would like to make some vodka actually I would like to have a go I'd like to make whiskey but again it's um I make a bit of cheese at home I've got oh, yeah. I've got my own cows and um I'm much better on younger cheeses than I am on older cheeses just because uh I'm not probably organised. You've got to be very, very well organised to make an old cheese. Ah, okay. You, you know, it's a lot of turning and watching and, and you know, keep keeping an eye on it sort of thing. Sounds like winemaking. Yeah, it does. So <laughs> maybe I'll, I'll plant an eating grape and stick to stick to buying bottles of wine. Eh, it'll be a bit of fun, side project. Well, I've got the space, so, um, you know, to, to plant a couple of couple of vines is no, no real mm. no real big drama so you know it'd be worth it just to I just like growing all sorts of fruits yeah. so. and they'll live forever I mean a vine is um, vines are part of the rose family the, the Viticae family okay. I didn't know that and that's why um, you know if you go to a lot of vineyards at the end of the rose you'll see roses planted oh right because the roses will actually show any diseases before the vine does it's oh, like the like early a, detection a, 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 yeah. said canary in the mine shaft sort of thing yep and so if you see that the vine the roses are showing this you know powdery mildew or something you'll go in and spray to, to, to you know kind of nip it in the bud before it gets gets into the vineyard um, but you know essentially they're part of the rose family and and, um, you know, they, they're, they're very tolerant. They'll grow in vol- volcanic soil is one of the best. And, you know, can imagine, like, you know, root system trying to get through volcanic soil is going to take a long time. But if you're up for the task, it's worth the wait. Okay. Um, everything, you know, fire will not kill them. You know, sometimes pesticides will not kill them. Pretty much the only thing that will completely, completely kill a vine is freezing it. Right. So, so, so they'll go right in relatively poor soils. Yeah, I mean, so poor soil, you know, might um, 
you know, it might not you might not get the same nutrient yield, and yeah. the same yield or the same vigor, um, and that's that's you know kind of the double edged sword of it. Um, but that said, you know they'll grow in in almost any sort of soil, and yeah. you know if you go to Champagne in the winter time, they'll have forty four gallon drums burning in the vineyard to keep the vines from freezing, you know, oh, because right. that's that's a viticultural hazard there. Yeah, you know, right. and you're down well, I guess, Kunawara. I guess um, it's less and less of a. A, a, a hassle every year. Everyone it? can say the global warming doesn't exist, but the wine industry knows it does. Because we well, yeah, well, how do like? And this is what I was thinking more about. It, and I, I don't know what the American wine scene's like, but the American cheese, um, uh, the the American cheese scene is very interesting because it's not it's not tied to tradition. They can mm-hmm. do whatever they like, and one of their great cheeses actually came out of a mistake where they were making. It wasn't a camembert, but it was... They were making a French cheese, and they had two tonne of milk, and they put the rennet in, and they brought it up to the right... To, like the, You know, the vat brings it up to the right temperature, and then you let it sit for two hours, and then the heat's supposed to turn off. And the thermostat broke, and it went eight degrees higher. It wasn't heaps, but it went it went beyond its, its sort of temperature range that it should have. And they came back in and they're like, oh, fuck, what are we going to do? It's two tonne of milk. It's not like... It's not a little amount. No, it's not... not Like, it is... It's, it's not a big amount for a, for a cheesemaker when you consider how much mm. you, you sort of break... Like, by the time you get your finished product, you're losing quite a bit of... True. Uh, ...of thing. But it's still... A, and he's like, well, let's just keep going. We'll just keep going and see what happens. Mm. And it turned into this cheese that they make and it is their signature cheese... And but if that had been France, they would have had no choice because if you oh, don't yeah. if you don't stick to the to the to the rules, if you don't follow it exactly how it is, then it, it's not what they call it, so they can't do it, and no one wants to buy a different cheese. Europe is the same with wine. Yeah. So how are they coping with the changes in temperatures? Because I guess as the temperature shifts, the vines that you're growing might not necessarily be the right type of vine for that climate. That is true, and I mean, a great example of that is Tasmania. Um, 20 years ago, nobody would have dreamt of planting Shiraz and making a, a really good quality Shiraz from Tasmania. Yeah. Sure, there probably was Shiraz planted, and it was maybe used in some cheaper wines or as filler or a blending Blend. grid, yeah. but no one was going to say, I'm going to Tassie and I'm going to make a really good Shiraz. Yeah. You know, three years ago, a Shiraz from Tasmania won the Jimmy Watson Trophy, which is the best one-year-old or two-year-old red wine in Australia. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Nick Glacier just you know nailed it and you know that's a, a variety that historically has been famous from the Barossa which is a warm climate now the Barossa is getting even warmer again yeah. and so now we're producing you know grapes from places that once upon a time were famous for cold climate varieties like Chardonnay and Riesling and Pinot mm. um, the Napa Valley and Oregon are still quite cool by, by uh, grape growing standards you know Napa's famous for Cabernet because it has very warm days but then big temperature fluctuations in the night. evening and so the vine gets this wonderful wonderful fluctuation and Cabernet and Chardonnay perform well in that environment does Stan does Stanthorpe get that Stanthorpe does um, or is it more a yearly but it's more of a yearly thing the other place that gets it in big 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 cases is South Africa Um, you head down to Cape Town and you go directly out of Cape Town into Stellenbosch 
and you climb up into the mountain to Elgin, you're about 700 metres above sea level with the Atlantic Ocean at the bottom. Yeah. And so the, you get the, the sea the, breeze ocean, the ocean the regulates the temperature, but it's not uncommon to get, you know, 38 in the daytime and 12 in the evening. Oh, yeah. And the average mean temperature in Elgin from October through April is 17 degrees. Wow. That's mean temperature, so that's taken across the whole day aggregate. But, you know, like that is a gigantic fluctuation. Yeah. And so, you know, the varieties there have... have, have taken off you know it was originally that area was used entirely for apple farming and 60 percent of south africa's apples came from that area and then 22 years ago an engineer named andrew gunn went in and started planting uh chardonnay sauvignon blanc pinot noir and syrah and um you know has turned this this wonderful piece of land into a real winemaking icon in that 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 part of the world and you know his chardonnays and his sauvignon blanc are kind of getting compared to the best of france and for a fraction of the price. You know, Chardonnay won double gold at the Six Nations Challenge last year. It costs me, you know, we sell it for about $24 a bottle to a restaurant. And this this was, you know, the second best Chardonnay in the world, world. last year. Wow. You know, that's a heck of a, t- <laughs> heck of a thing to do. And the vineyard's only 22 years old, you know. And this guy, uh, it was like a sea change for him. He'd been an engineer his whole life, but he really wanted to get his hands dirty. Wow. You know, and so he found, you know, apparently the story goes, he, he went for 20 different, like, relocations with a, a real estate agent looking at vineyards and nothing grabbed his fancy. And he found this derelict apple farm. And the guy's like, oh, nobody wants that. And he's like, I've got it. <laughs> and, and, and converted it to vines. And sure enough, it was a success. But, you know, so, I mean, these some parts of the world are still uh, still have that fluctuation. Um, Oregon, in, you know, in Willamette uh, is, is really quite cool. Still, Sapino and Chardonnay, Riesling do very, very well it's, there. It's cool and sort of misty, wet. Yeah, sort of. and you really do have the Pacific Ocean help um, help regulate the temperature there. It's why also like around San Francisco, Monterey. So it's, um, it seems like Margaret River, like all those places, anywhere that the, the ocean has a Mediterranean big climates. You know, Mark, McLaren Vale, um, of course. You know, like your uh, yeah, Margaret River is a great example. Further inland from that, Great Southern is quite cool climate because you've got the Australian Bite down the bottom as well, regulating your temperature. Sure. Um, and then there's other parts that are going to slowly struggle. You know, like I, I kind of wonder what the future for a place like the Barossa will be in you know 50 years' time, 100 years' time with yeah. um, with the temperature increases we experience. Um, and you know, it could it could you know vintages keep getting earlier and earlier and earlier. Uh, yeah. At some point. Well, um, you probably know Kira. Hmm. Um, and yeah, she was saying that you know she expected to be at at that vintage for a lot longer. But yeah, it was just like it's ready. Bam, off, off we go. And then you get a, an occasional freak vintage like 2011 in South Australia, coldest and wettest vintage in recorded history. Yeah. And it was purely because every two or three days it rained, and then yeah. you do, you get a little break and you thought, yes, we're going to pick our fruit, and then it rained again. Yeah. And you're like, oh crap. So once you know, it rains, you just can't touch it. You've got to let it dry out. You, you kind of, you, you can risk it, but, yeah. you know, a vine will soak up everything in the ground, yeah. you know, and um, you a don't bit want like that. Tomatoes. Yeah, you want, you want the, vi- the grapes to kind of not have that extra water. Um, and, you know, uh, the problem with, with uh, water at vintage time, especially come February, March, is heat and humidity. Yeah, and and uh, once humidity gets in, mould comes and you start facing a real uphill battle. Which I guess is the problem with growing grapes in Queensland. 
Yeah. Because you got that humidity all the time. You know, Barsac is famous in France for making sweet wine, making dessert wines, and it's because you've got the the river that stems off the uh, the Dordogne that runs through the middle there. And, you know, if you go to Barsac and get up at, you know, 5 a.m. <coughs> as the sun's breaking, the entire region is covered in this mist. Yeah. You know, and then, then the humidity starts to kick in, of course, and all this moisture. And So they're using it for... They're using it deliberately yeah, to, okay. to attract the Botrytis fungus, which yeah. they want, and they've deliberately planted varieties that are susceptible to that fungus, fungus. so that it happens um, but not every vintage is going to be a guaranteed thing you know sometimes you, uh, you, you so it's a little bit more risky a little bit more too, risky. too far and and like you talking about with your cheese makers when you start talking about your botrytis fungus um, it removes all the moisture from the grape which intensifies the sugars yeah, and those other flavors shrivels, doesn't it? and shrivels and raisins and so you're losing you could imagine putting uh, you know 10 ton of shriveled grapes into a crusher and mm. crushing it and then put 10 ton of, you know, really plump berries into a, another crusher and crush that, you're going to end up with far more juice out of the yeah. the, the non-raisined um, grape varieties. And so it's an expensive winemaking process because the risk is great and you've got Less very weight. low yields. Yeah, you know? okay. well, by the time you crush that fruit, you might get, you know, a fraction of what you'd get otherwise if you'd made just a, you know, semion from semion grapes instead of making a Botrytis semion. Yeah, okay. And so double-edged sword sometimes. Uh, well, thank you very much for coming in, Stacey. You want to give anything a plug? No, not really. No. What, where can if 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 I'm a restaurateur and I'm listening to this, where where can we find you on the interwebs? Um, www.lareserve.com.au um, and uh, we've also got um, www.fatgrape.com.au, which is our online business, yep. um, our retail business. And, okay, uh, so you, do, you, you sell retail as well? We do, we do, yeah. um, but just through the internet. And uh, and of course, you know, I'm always pounding the pavement all around Brisbane. Yeah. So. No worries. Um, we'll throw those links into the show notes, and I should probably get on and... I didn't know you sold direct to the public, so I should probably get on and check out and <laughs> buy some sponsored product. Definitely. Um, but thanks Out of for, interest, what's your preference? I definitely liked... Um, I definitely like the, the the one with the more varieties in it. I think. Okay. Um, my problem with red wine is once I start, I can't stop. <laughs> like I can have a beer and go, oh, that's I've had enough. Um, yeah. Uh, but I like, and I think it's, it's something about the glass. I, I really, really uh, the more the the older I've got, the more red wine has been. That was good, man.